You can tell someone's in the family by the marks that they share. Well, what of Christians? What are the marks of the Spirit-filled life? What does it look like to walk by the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to live by the Spirit? Well, we've seen already that every genuine Christian who has been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, has been made alive by that Spirit. Uh, they've been, they can call God Abba, Father, and that Spirit is at work in them, putting to death the works of the flesh and producing the fruit of the Spirit. And we've seen in the, in the book of Galatians how, how Paul has railed against these false teachers who have been making them turn to another gospel, a, a gospel that says faith is not enough, that the Spirit is not enough, that they need to be circumcised and keep the law if they really want to be perfect, if they really want to live a life that will please God. And so Paul has argued in chapter 1 and 2 from his own conversion In chapters 3 and 4 from the Old Testament, how we've only ever been justified by faith. That it is those who hear the gospel and believe it that receive the Spirit and enter into God's family. And just last week, or two weeks ago in chapter 5, we saw that we have all that we need to live the life that pleases God. For us who have the Spirit, the Spirit works in us to enable us to live the life of love. But the question we have as we come to chapter 6 today is what does that look like practically? And are those marks evident in your life and mine? Are our lives marked by the works of the flesh or are we sowing to the Spirit? Now, now, sadly, I think as uh, evangelicals, we can be very good at getting our theology right, isn't it? Uh, where we can articulate with the great, greatest of clarity that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But somewhere along the lines, we, we seem to have trouble so often seeing that translate practically into our day-to-day lives. Well, Paul has three marks of the spirit-filled life he wants to draw our attention to as we finish off this letter to the Galatians. And let me tell you, they are spectacularly ordinary. Spectacularly ordinary. No ecstatic utterances or powerful gifts. No withdrawing to super-holy monasteries. Not overflowing with riches and health. What is this spirit-filled life marked by? Well, three things you can see on your outline. A loving concern to restore sinners, not proud superiority, a careful investment in the things of the spirit, not the flesh, and a right boasting in the cross, not outward appearance. Well, if you're following along, let's turn to the first mark there, a loving concern for others, not proud superiority. The the principle is there in uh, chapter 6 and verse 2, where Paul writes, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, many have repeated in chapters 5 and 6 the repetition of these words, one another, Uh, where the law and the kind of legalistic religion that the false teachers were propagating, puts the focus on me and on my performance, grace shifts the focus to others. Because a spirit-filled person doesn't need to prove themselves to God. 
and they don't need to prove themselves by comparing themselves to others. The, The gospel person is free to love without expecting anything in return. And so Paul says we're to bear one another's burdens. We're meant to share the worries and temptations, our doubts and sorrows in the Christian life. It's a simple point, but it's easily forgotten, isn't it? We're meant to be interconnected in the Christian life. We're not meant to live in some kind of self-isolation where uh, thinking that we don't want to share our needs with other people because we don't want them to, to think that we're going badly or something like that. And nor should the Christian life be, uh, be marked by this kind of self-focused, hard-hearted indifference where we don't really care for the struggles that our brethren are going through. It's God's purpose we see here, and it's spectacularly ordinary that we should bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Well, what is this law of Christ? Thought there was no more law in the Christian life. Well, Paul has already told us of this law. Uh, In chapter 5, verse 14, Paul says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, See, whereas the, the false teachers had been imposing burdens on the Galatians by making them follow the law... Well, the gospel of grace lifts those burdens and causes us to live in love. Well, as we move on, we see that Paul has a specific example of burden-bearing in mind, and it's there in verse 1, restoring those burdened with sin. Verse 1, Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now, perhaps Paul has in mind here uh, the general problem of Christians falling back into the works of the flesh, uh, the works of the flesh we saw in chapter 5. Maybe that he has in mind here the the false teachers or any who who have followed them, who have fallen back into Judaism. But his point is, it's, it's so easy when our brother or sister falls into sin either to ignore them and let them go to their own destruction, or simply uh, uh, abandon them. But when we see a brother caught in sin, and maybe an addiction to pornography, an obsession with career, a, a heart that is filled with greed, or uncontrolled gossip, well, we can't just stand by as our brothers and sisters get caught in that. Love compels us to take action, and that, that action is, is not just to rebuke them and tell them how bad they are. Although we must, of course, correct them. Our motivation is always, as Paul says here, to see them restored. To see them brought back to Christ, living for his glory once again. Do you notice who is to do this restoring work? And Paul says, you who are spiritual. Uh, It's very likely Paul is uh, having a go at the false teachers here. They were probably suggesting that there should have been a special group of spiritual Christians, the ones who kept the law. Uh, But we've seen in chapter 5, all Christians are in fact spiritual. All Christians have been given the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, produce the fruit of the Spirit. 
And so what that means is this job of lovingly restoring our brothers and sisters burdened with sin. Well, it's not just a job for the pastoral team. It's not just a job for our Bible study leader. This is a job for every single one of us in the congregation, every single Christian. We are to bear the burdens of our brothers and sisters as they struggle with sin. We correct them and we try to bring them back to Christ. Well, do you notice how we are to do it? It's not with harshness and an air of superiority, but with gentleness, knowing that we too were once sinners needing God's grace. It's not proudly thinking that we're above such things. We'd never do that. But with self-control, knowing we too are prone to the very same temptations. Do you see there at the end of verse 1? Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So there's there's the first point. We need to bear one another's burdens. But as we go to verses 3 to 5, Paul shows us that ultimately our attitude to other people, how we treat them, is intimately connected to the way we think about ourselves. See, while we think that we are better than other people, while we compare and we think that we are superior, while we're still engaging in that kind of fleshly religion that focuses on what I must do, well, we'll never be able to lovingly correct and restore those who are burdened by sin. We need to have a right appraisal of ourselves. And notice how Paul gives it to us there in verse 3. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. I think he's implying here the reason why we don't go out of our way to help our brothers and sisters burden with sin is that we think it's beneath us, that we compare ourselves to them, we find ourselves morally superior, and then before long we deceive ourselves that God must think the same way about us too. But isn't it true the gospel of grace cuts away every form of boasting? See, we're no better than them, are we? We are all But sinners saved by grace, we bring nothing. We deserve nothing. If any of us are Christians, then it's only because of the work of the Spirit of God in our life. And if any of us does anything that is good, well, that's not because of me. That's because of the fruit that the Spirit has brought forth in in our lives. We need to stop playing the game, the performance game of comparing ourselves with other people. Instead, Paul shows us what we should be concerned about. Verse 4, let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbour, for each will have to bear his own load. Now, at first sight, you read that, it sounds like a contradiction of verse 2, isn't it? It said, bear one another's burdens, now we have to bear our own load. What's going on? Well, I think Paul's point is uh, fairly simple. The word here uh, for, in, for load in verse 5 is a different one to verse 2. Here it's a light, like a backpack kind of thing. Verse 2, it's a heavy burden. You need help to lift it. See, Paul is saying here, we do have a responsibility to look out for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to be helping one another in the Christian life, helping us to live for Jesus. 
But in the end, at the end of the day, one day we will face God by ourselves on the judgment day. And God's not going to excuse us because X or Y didn't help us. And God's not going to excuse us because you performed better than him. In the end, on the judgment day, what will matter is your personal faith. You will have to answer for how you lived your life, for your service of him, and not for anyone else. And on that day, our only hope as Paul has reminded us, is God's grace to us, not how we compare to others. There's the first mark of the Spirit-filled life, a loving concern to restore sinners, not proud superiority. Well, the second mark is there in verses 6 to 10, a careful investment in the Spirit, not the flesh. Uh, the principle is there first in verses 7 and 8. And do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh from the flesh will reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now, it's a, it's a very simple uh, uh, point here, isn't it? You don't need to know farming to understand what he's talking about. You reap what you sow, right? You sow barley seeds, you get a barley harvest. You sow wheat, wheat seeds, you get a wheat harvest. You sow nothing, you get nothing. You sow good things, you get good things. You sow bad things, you get bad things. We get the point, right? But he's applying it to the spiritual realm here. He's saying in your life, you can either invest in the things of the flesh by which he means our our natural fleshly desires, what we want to live for in the here and now, or we can invest in the things of the Spirit. And Paul warns us, we can rest assured, whatever we choose to invest our lives in day by day, well, that will have certain consequences for the future. Now, what are you sowing to right now? To the flesh? Or to the Spirit. See, we cannot sow to the flesh and avoid the consequences. And yet, as Christians, it's so easy for us, isn't it? To get tangled up with our fleshly desires. Every time we allow our minds to harbor a grudge or nurse a grievance. Every time we entertain some impure fantasy or we wallow in self-pity. We are sowing to the flesh. Every time we we look up pornographic material, we feed our greed, we engage in gossip, where we are sowing to the flesh. And we may be able to deceive ourselves if our life is constantly characterized by those things. But Paul says God will not be mocked if our life is spent continually sowing to the flesh, then rest assured, the result will be corruption. And here, that can only mean everlasting destruction because it's only those who sow to the Spirit who get eternal life. Holiness is a harvest. The only way you can get holiness is to sow to the Spirit. So can I ask you, have a look at your life. What is your life absorbed with? The flesh? Or to the Spirit? If we're sowing to the Spirit, what will our life look like? 
when we'll be investing in the lives of our brothers and sisters. It will show through in the books that we, that we read, how often that we read our Bibles, how often that we pray. It will show through in what we do with our money. It will show through with how we care for our family and our friends. Sowing to the Spirit will show through in every aspect of our life. But again, Paul has two specific examples in mind of what it looks like to sow to the Spirit. And the first is there in verse 6, giving to gospel ministry. Paul says, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, I think as evangelicals, we rightly shy away from talking about money very often, isn't it? Because there are so many churches out there where appeals for money is a constant feature every single week. But Paul is clear here, isn't he? What we do with our money is a very sure sign of whether you are sowing to the flesh or you are sowing to the spirit. See, many Christians pay enormous amounts of money for their children to be educated. They pour their money into their cars, into their condominiums, their computers. And then when it comes to coming to church and supporting those who faithfully teach them the Bible week by week, well, the money is sadly lacking. And it's a key symptom, isn't it? That we are sowing to the flesh. I mean, what could be more important to invest our money in than in gospel ministry, in supporting those who preach the gospel of grace to feed our souls. Now, I'm a volunteer here at St Mary's. I don't receive any money from St Mary's, so I feel very free to talk about this topic with you. There's nothing in it for me. So can I urge you, if you are not in the habit of regular giving for the gospel then now is the time to begin. If you benefit from the ministry here at St Mary's, if you benefit from the, the ministry of other, other organisations like KVBC, if you benefit from, from these things, well, then the right thing to do is to use your money to support those gospel ministries because what you do with your money is a very clear sign of what you are investing your life in. Now, many of you may know that on the ministry team here, uh, many of the people, including Tim and Kenneth, Shirley and Yockling, well, they are supported here by our Ministry Workers Fund. The only reason they can be here and preach the gospel to you week by week is because people like you give money generously so that they can be involved in teaching the Word. Now, the Ministry Workers Fund, is, this balance is very low. So let me tell you, if you want to apply these verses, then you need to give. Because what we invest in, well, it will reap the consequences either way. See, when St Mary's can no longer afford to pay its staff, and they can no longer minister among us, well, you will see the spiritual fruit of your actions. But we need to keep sharing all good things with our teachers, our encouraging words, and of course our money. Now, let me just say here, just for clarity's sake, when I say we should give our money, this is not 
As the prosperity teachers say, Joel Osteen, Joseph Prince, you know who I'm talking about, they argue from this very passage that if you sow to the Spirit, if you give your money to the church, well, God will multiply it back to you a hundredfold. There's no such promise here, is there? The harvest that he's talking about, it's not a financial harvest, is it? It's not give $10 and you'll get back 10000 The harvest here is spiritual. And so we can be assured that if we respond to God's grace, if we invest in his kingdom with our time, with our money, with our energy, well, one day we will reap eternal life. And that brings us to the second example that he has, doing good, in verses 9 and 10. Paul says, verse 9, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, do you notice there how the, the future harvest is meant to motivate our behaviour now? Uh, when we're feeling tired in ministry, uh, when preparing that next Sunday school lesson or the next Bible study or, or meeting up with that Christian is, is tiring, when the person is difficult, well, what are we meant to do? Paul says, keep your eyes on the harvest that is coming. Look forward to it because it will surely come. And if you don't give up... If you continue sowing, if you continue doing good, well, then you will one day see the fruit of your labours. And especially here, his focus is on the church, on the household of God, our brothers and sisters in Christ, because we are members together in God's family. That's the second mark of the spirit-filled life, a careful investment in the things of the spirit and not the flesh. Well, the third mark of the spirit-filled life is a right boasting in the cross and not outward appearance, read verses 11 to 16. Now, just in case our Paul's readers were dozing off at the end of his letter or perhaps we're dozing off at the end of my sermon, well, Paul tries to rouse their attention once more as he pens verse 11. See what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It's as if Paul grabs the pen and the ink out of the hand of the scribe to pen this last paragraph himself. Now, we don't know why the letters are large. People have all kinds of theories. But I think the most likely here is he's writing big letters to un- underline his point. You know, here is bold italics, 16-point red font. You know, pay attention. Pay attention. And in this last paragraph, Paul describes the two mindsets that have been w- at war throughout this letter and what they boast in. He begins with the wrong boasting in the flesh, with the legalists. Verse 12, this is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh, who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. Now, do you notice here how Paul repeats the word flesh several times? It's ironic, isn't it? The false teachers have been saying, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. They've made salvation about 
the flesh rather than about faith. And Paul unveils their motives. In the end, Paul recognises these false teachers, well, they're preaching this gospel of Christ plus the law just because they were afraid of being persecuted. I mean, no one wants to preach a message that hits at people's pride, isn't it? That tells you, you're a sinner, you're a nothing, you deserve nothing from God. Your only hope is God's grace. It's much easier to hear, tell people a popular message, isn't it? To tell them what they want to hear. That The prosperity teachers are like that. They tell you that God wants to make you happy and rich and healthy. Just have faith and give money and God will achieve anything in your life. But the true motives of the false teachers is exposed by their behavior. The Judaizers here, they may have preached that you need to keep the law. But Paul knows what's in their heart because they did not keep it themselves. Pleasing God, it seems, was never their motive. They just wanted to boast in the Corinthians' flesh. Nothing in history cuts us down like the cross. At the foot of the cross, we shrink to our true size. And it is no wonder that if you will preach the cross you will be persecuted and proud people who do not want to suffer will talk about anything but the cross of Jesus. The truth is, we cannot boast in ourselves and in the cross at the same time. If we boast in ourselves and in our ability to save ourselves, we will never boast in Christ and his cross. We have to choose in the end, you see, if we will humble ourselves as sinners deserving judgment, if we will give up our boasting, give up our pride, and humble ourselves at the foot of the cross. Well, we see the right grounds for boasting in verses 14 to 16. Boasting in the cross. See, what mattered to Paul and what should matter to us is only the cross of Jesus. Verse 14, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Now, do you see, Paul didn't care about anything else. He didn't care about circumcision or uncircumcision. Those things were nothing. What mattered to Paul was the cross, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's only the cross, isn't it, that is capable of taking dead sinners who deserve nothing from God and making them right with God. Only the cross can achieve that amazing transformation where we go from being slaves to sin to the children of God. Only the cross could help us to be people who inherit the kingdom of God and be members of the new creation. At the foot of the cross, the world ought to be dead to us. We ought to not care what the world thinks of us or it doesn't. We ought not to care about the world's pleasures or not because all of those things are temporary. All of those things will pass. But it is the cross that opens the door to eternity to the new creation. Only those who boast 
in the cross will experience peace and mercy. Peace and mercy is only possible through the cross as Christ dies in our place. Mercy only flows because Christ died so that we may be forgiven. And so you see how Paul finishes there in verse 16. And as for all who walk by this rule, all who boast only in the cross, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. And Paul is saying here that Christians who boast in the cross, well, they are the true Israel. They are the true sons of Abraham. They are the true ones that have peace with God and mercy from God. Well, as we uh, finish up our series on Galatians, I believe we're going to have an overview next week to, to recap everything in, in one uh, big picture. But let me just st- let's just stand back for a few moments to see where Paul ends. Because he begins where he started, isn't it? First, we have uh, verse 17. Paul says, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. There's a question has been running through all the way through the letter. How do I know what the true gospel is? Who do I listen to? And Paul has been vindicated again and again, Christ's apostle. Here it is, he bears the marks of Jesus. You can see by his life that he's out to please God, not man, that he's been preaching God's gospel, not man's gospel, because he is willing to suffer, just as he follows Christ who suffered for him. And then the final verse, Paul goes back to where he started. Chapter 1, verse 3, Paul had opened and said, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, for our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age. And that's where he he ends as well, isn't it? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. For Paul, the gospel was all about grace from the beginning to the end. And we have seen that that gospel of grace has at its heart the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ because it is only there at the cross that sinners like you and me who have no hope of ever performing to God's standards, only there at the cross do we have any hope of justification any hope of adoption, any hope of receiving the gift of the Spirit. Indeed, only by God's gracious gift of His Holy Spirit do we have any chance of living the life of love that He has called us to live. How marvellous hasn't it been for us to reflect on God's grace towards us in Jesus. May we indeed treasure it. May we indeed fight for it and defend it. And in the light of God's grace to us, let us keep in mind what we've seen here in chapter 6, that the Spirit-filled life, the life that has received grace, ought to be marked by a loving concern to restore sinners, not proud superiority, a careful investment in the things of the Spirit, not the flesh, and a right boasting in the cross and not outward appearances. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the mighty cross where your grace was lavished upon us. 
Father, we thank you that at the cross we can be declared righteous, right with you. And we thank you for giving us your spirit that has brought us to life and is bringing forth in us the fruit of the spirit. Help us indeed not to keep grace merely in our heads, but let it flow through into our lives, the way that we relate to one another, in what we boast in and what we invest in. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.